Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending May 29. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this week's podcast, you are going to hear uh, a huge one because we spoke to so many people. We kicked off the week with uh, Jack Lattimore to mark Sorry Day. And I had some news about a rabbit that died and uh, <laughs> being in the family way as I am now. Uh, we got to chat to uh, Digger for Down and Dirty, who um, told us about planting uh, plants that make tea and also how to make a good cup of tea. Also, um, I got a bit of a fright one morning when um, a huntsman came to visit and we got to chat to uh, Dr. Alistair Evans about the uh, crazy beast. We were also joined by Royal Watcher, Laura Dunneman, our Friday funny bugger, talking aristocrats in ISO. Uh, Director Warwick Thornton swung by virtually to chat about his new project, The Beach. And one half of Lane on Woodley, we spoke to Colin Lane about Lane on Woodley singing some songs. Melbourne's own Triple R. On this day in 1997, the Bringing Them Home report exposing the forced removal of Indigenous children from their families was tabled in Parliament and the anniversary each year is observed Australia-wide. This sorry day, we're joined by Jack Lattimore, Senior Editor for NITV News, columnist for The Guardian, former Indigenous researcher at the Centre for Advancing Journalism and contributor to a host of publications including Courier Mail, GQ Magazine, Overland and Bulletins for the WHO. Jack, welcome to Breakfasters. G'day, how are you doing? Excellent. Uh, can you tell us the significance of Sorry Day for you and maybe how it's evolved, if at all, over the decades? Uh, well, the significance for me, I guess, is on two levels. Um, in terms of personal, my grandmother and her, well, my great aunties, uh, they were removed from my great-grandfather and great-grandmother. So they spent time in Cootamundra. And that affected the lives of everybody, obviously. But um, my great-grandfather, Pop Gula, he um, he was off at war at the time that they were removed. So he left to defend you know, the, the flag, the Australian Commonwealth. Uh, and then while he was gone, they removed his kids and put some of them in Cootamundra and looking to put the boys in Kinchilla. So... Had ramifications uh, transgenerationally in terms of its impact on uh, my grandmother's sort of mob down to the next generation with my mum, and it probably passed on down to us, and you know manifested in various ways, and probably is still doing so today. And the other way that it has an impact is each year I get to do these sorts of things and <laughs> have a chat about all the facts and figures and the impacts. I've heard reports I've heard from the community about the relevance of it, um, challenges to you know the whole concept of uh, reconciliation week, that sort of thing. Mm. Well, what are the facts and figures that are salient to you right now on this sorry day? Well, we're still at that sort of stage where it's over, I think, 10.2 times more likely for Aboriginal kids to be removed from their family than it is for non-Indigenous kids to be removed. Uh, that's the big one. Mm. Um, I think from 2005, it was about 5.2 times more likely. Uh, the 2018 Family Matters report, yeah, put that at two, uh, over 
or just around 10.2 times more likely. So there's been a jump there. So I guess that's the biggest one. You can go dive right in to, you know, all these figures. Um, it sort of gets lost. The impact gets lost. Uh, for example, you can go 47,915 kids in care between 2016 2017. Of that figure, 17,646 or 34% were Aboriginal. So each year this these figures get churned out, uh, but it doesn't convey the magnitude of the impact on you know, the daily impact of the lives of Aboriginal people. Mm. Been, you know, transgenerational impact uh, to this day. And also, kids still being removed. How is healing, which is complex anyway, uh, how optimistic are you for healing or how does it happen with ongoing problems and crises that you've just outlined? Well, there's a lot. I guess there's a, a number of ways of answering that. Uh, there's national redress schemes within the states for stolen generations, and within those schemes, there's certain amounts, millions that are poured into you know, healing, uh, the healing direction, you know, via applications for grants and stuff like that. So I guess the big question is whether there's enough funding there for people to get the healing that's required. Um, it doesn't seem like a really significant amount of money for the number of people that were impacted. Um, so I guess that's that's the first one. But again, this whole, I keep saying transgenerational trauma that was inflicted uh, from these policies that went right up until, say, 19, well, 1970s, mid-1970s. But you know, it's still happening today, but just in a different guise. Not as, not as, um, well, not by Aboriginal protection welfare boards or, or whatever it might be. Um, so yeah, there's various. I don't. There's a there's a way of healing they say for these people that are formerly under the stolen generations uh, banner, and the, the the new ones that have been removed. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, I, th- I think it's really important to make clear to, to people on this day it's about acknowledging and increasing awareness of uh, these removal policies and it's important to emphasise that you know, it's not something that happened in Australia's distant past or anything mm. like that. It went up to the 70s and, and it's just still happening today on probably just as a significant scale. Well, I mean, this is a really big question. It's not something you might have the answer to, but... We hear these numbers of the removal of Indigenous children each year, and, and as you say, they've continued to increase. What what needs to ha- What institutional change needs to happen for, for 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 us to see a shift in this? Uh, well, I think the big one that most of the reports, like uh, Megan Davis's report, that came out last year. Um, can't remember the name of that report, something like Culture Matters, something like that. It was Megan Davis's report. And the Family Matters before that, back in 2018, all seem to be pointing to um, greater involvement from community uh, organisations, community representatives, 
peak organisations um, around shaping uh, uh, policy um, and implementing uh, those sorts of things uh, in the community. That isn't happening at the moment. Um, everything that you, or everything that I hear, is that um, there's like a willful disregard, widespread non-compliance uh, in a child protection uh, or care services throughout the states and territories, even though a lot of lip service <clears throat> is given towards, you know, uh, listening tours or listening practices. Um, seems those boxes get checked, ticked, you know, we're going on a listening tour uh, to hear from community, but when it comes to actually, you know, putting into place the sorts of structural uh, <laughs> involvement or participation, engagement type um, structures that, you know, just from the number of people saying that they're not being, their voices are not being heard, uh, it seems that, you know, it's not being, it's not occurring at that level. And I see overnight ABSEC, the peak body for Aboriginal Child Protection in New South Wales, is poised to have half its funding cut. Yeah, uh, I've seen that. I don't know. Like, I know they're losing some funding, but um, I don't know if that's just towards the end of the year and they're mm -hmm. losing some, you know, what I heard was their core funding remains in place. So I'd mm -hmm. have to check that one. Yeah. And what about 2020, this pandemic year? How, I imagine, what does that do to Sorry Day? Well, I don't know. I've never sort of experienced anything like we're in at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, I guess it's going to be more difficult for mob to come together and support all of those sorts of um, you know, what Chelsea Bond calls as the morning tea meetings that you have every reconciliation week are going to be more difficult. Um, I don't know. If it's Sorry Day and Rec Week in general are about, you know, uh, the broader or wider community acknowledging and recognising that these, well, in, in uh, reference to Sorry Day, uh, that these sorts of things occurred in Rec Week about, you know, um, what non-Indigenous community can do and organisations, corporations can do uh, in bridging cultural difference and that sort of thing, I suppose. Hmm. Uh, all those sorts of things will happen online, just the same as, as it ever was, or, you know. Yeah, yeah. there are, there are some streaming events. You can head to reconciliation.org.au for more information. And can you tell us, just before we leave, about your, uh, your recent work? Uh, I'm thinking about uh, media representation. Um, at the moment, I've just been working a lot with NITV, uh, in their, their news um, department. So in terms of representation, it's basically just getting black voices telling black stories, hmm. um, getting more journos, um, ironically, while well, the media industry is struggling at the moment with outlets going down and people being laid off, uh, we're looking for black journos. So... Um, yeah, that's just probably you – know, it's just getting stories told right uh, by the right people. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, that's the same as you know, pre-COVID. 
And also, just finally, uh, as a dad yourself, is there anything that you're uh, picking up, or uh, as a custodian of stories, you know, uh, how do you propagate uh, the the messages that you want to pass on in a way that maybe differs from what you picked up as a kid, or, or is it a continuum for you? Oh, I think the modes are a little bit different. I mean, when I grew up and where I grew up, I was regularly surrounded by a large family all getting together and talking and, you know, getting on the charge and telling stories. Um, my kids generally get a lot of what, you know, that same sort of entertainment or community participation online. Um, so... You know, I expect as they get older that'll be more the case as well. Mm. Um, so I don't know if if, that's, if that changes the way I suppose it would because they're not picking up uh, all of the little nuances and stuff in terms of storytelling. Um, but yeah, uh, difficult to say at this stage. My kids are only really young, so yeah, so got, yeah. He's more interested in shooting <laughs> zombies on Xbox. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Uh, well, uh, Tuesday, May 26, is National Sorry Day. We've been speaking with Senior Editor for NITV News, Jack Lattimore. Thanks so much, Jack. No problem. Thanks, guys. Triple R. Dirt, dirt, dirt. It's where you grow your plants. Dirt, dirt, dirt. Hey, you got some on your pants. Can you stop singing about dirt? Digger's taking a break from making school lunches to join us for Down and Dirty. Hey, Digger, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I've never been so happy to have yoga and veggie tips. I've polished the apple. Bloody magic. Um, and is it emotional saying goodbye to them? Um, nah. Nah, we're all over each other. We've, yeah, we love each other. Um, but uh, it was great to boot them out of the car. <laughs> you're not even allowed. You're not even allowed in the school grounds anymore. So it was perfect. To, there's not even kiss and drop anymore. It's just open the door and kick them out. And <laughs> That's magic. Oh, God no, it, was, damn. it was. It was kind of sad, but kind of you know, it made me beautiful. Got beautiful cards thanking me for teaching them for all that time, and yeah, it was lovely. But I'm over it, and everyone needs to get on with the rest of their lives. That is nice. <laughs> um, now you can kick back and have a nice cup of tea, I suppose. Well, very well done, Daniel. Very well done. Absolutely. Are you guys tea drinkers? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Massive tea drinker I am, and my family's all massive tea drinkers. Growing up, I'm one of six kids and, you know, endless cousins and, and everything. So when people would come over, my job growing up was tea maker, chief tea maker, and it wouldn't oh. be unusual. In my house, we didn't have a kettle. We had an urn. Oh, oh wow. 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 How old are you? There would be, how old am I? <laughs> You're not under oath. <laughs> um, but it was. It would just be that many people in the house to make cups of tea. It was just a waste of time having a kettle. So we'd literally have a five-litre urn and just <gasps> constantly pumping out teas. So, yeah, I love a good cup of tea. But um, reason being that, you know, I've been thinking about this for years and I haven't done it, and this year it's going to happen. You're all familiar with camellias? Yes. Yeah, Nana's camellias are big, blousy. Some of them, you know, in, in the middle of winter, most of the time is flowering time. Mm-hmm. Um, the common ones are camellia japonica and, and sasanqua camellias. But there's a little cousin, which not many people know, but is a camellia sinensis, which is what all teas are made from. 
Oh. Like, yeah, a camellia of all things. So, you, you know, you get this vision in your head of what a camellia looks like. And so camellia sinensis, um, and as the name suggests, in Latin, sinensis means from China, so originating from China. Um, and just this amazing little shrub gets to between, you know, six foot, two metres kind of size um, and has now spread and has become popular grown all around the world. So outside of China, India is probably the next one. And then surprisingly enough, even through um, eastern Africa, through Kenya and those kind of areas, um, it's widely grown. But I've seen it become available in Australia in more recent years. Um, so everyone could be starting to grow their own tea, which is, I reckon, super fun. Imagine that, you're creating your own blend from your own backyard. So wow. just to be clear, cause I don't want to sound dumb, but so this is, is this like a black tea, is that right? Like a, like a caffeinated black tea when you talk about tea? Because I have friends who make their own peppermint tea that they grow and they dry out or other dandelion stuff, but is this like a, exactly. a black tea? So, okay, right. So this is the definition. By, by using the word tea we mean that it, the product comes from Camellia sinensis. Oh. So all the rest of them are infusions. Huh. There you go. So tea. So the, so the types of tea that are made from Camellia sinensis into, include white tea, yellow tea, black tea, oolong, red tea, um, Darjeeling, all those kind of varieties all are from Camellia sinensis. The main difference is the way that it's the, the leaves are prepared, it, it changes the... Um, the flavour and the intensity and the, and the caffeine level of that drink. But all of those black tea, white tea, green tea, all comes from the exact same plant. Wow. So which part of the – like you've grown it and then yep. how do you – What are you picking the leaves or the flowers? So it's, yeah, it's the brand-new leaves. And so this is, again, how different varieties are made. So when the new leaves first pop up, they have this kind of like white, downy little film on them. And so those leaves are picked to make white tea. And then if you let them go a little bit longer, it's always the fresh two to three leaves. So in springtime is when you know, the main new growth season is because we're going into winter now. That's when flowering is. After flowering, the plant will want to put on new growth for next year. So it's the new growth that you're tipping. And it's, they're very very careful to you know, pick off those new leaves because obviously you can't bruise those leaves. It's like bruising an apple when you're picking it by, high, by hand. And they can only be picked by hand. And that's why you see, remember the old Dilma ad? Yes. And you see people in the field. Oh, sorry, I couldn't say that word without singing it because it was just the <laughs> ad ringing in my head. Yeah. But, you know, that just hand-picked. So depending on what part of the leaves you pick off and not bruise can affect the type of tea that that leaf will be used for. So green tea, for example, is picked the exact same way as black tea, as white tea, as oolong, as Darjeeling. They're all picked exactly the same. The main difference is from that point, there's a, a treatment called oxidation. So kind of just like, you know, when you let your apple, apples go off, if you just leave them out in the light, uh, the enzymes kind of ferment a little bit and the, the leaf goes dark in colour. Whereas if you want a green tea, you want to have, you know how green tea is obviously light, kind of grassy tones, it's not the deep dark colour when you make the tea out of it. It's because the leaf hasn't been allowed to oxidise, so come into contact with too much oxygen. So those leaves are then steamed really, really quick, picked, and then there's a process called withering where they just sit for you know half a day or so in the sun and then it's steamed. And what that does preserves the green colour in the leaf 
and stops it from oxidising and changes the flavour completely. Is so that, there's a few different processes. Is that the same process that would de- decide how caffeinated something is? So like green tea's quite heavy, like the caffeine in it's quite strong. Exactly. Is exactly. That, ah. and that's, that's, that, and that's And coffee makers do the exact same thing with coffee beans. It's the level of oxidation changes the level of ca- caffeine in them. So, you know, um, and so the hence the darker the tea the more caffeine levels you have in it. Uh, can, can I ask another question? Or uh, I was going to say dumb question, but I didn't want to throw Sarah out of the bus. It's not a dumb question. No dumb <laughs> questions here. Um, That's the thing. I love questions. Not the, if, if, if coffee is – if the scientific name for the plant is coffee plant, why don't we call tea – like a let's have a cup of camellia? Okay, because it actually comes down to family names. So camellia sinensis is its binomial name. Um, so, you know, it's, it's Latin binomial name, but its family is Tia, T-H-E-A. Right. And so it was all came – so originally it was called Tia, and then I think uh, Linnaeus changed his name. There was a, a guy – now I've got to remember my botany. Um, his name was Kamal, um, from, so obviously from Asian regions, and so it was renamed – Tia was renamed Carmelia after Kamal. Oh. Yeah. I think it was 1756 or something like that. All right. Um, just, well, just quickly, this really is a, maybe a stupid question. <laughs> what if I? What if you just got a normal camellia plant and tried to do make tea out of it? What would happen? You will get poisoned. Okay, don't do <laughs> that. Okay. So it's a very – and this is the thing, for, the warning for everybody. So it's very specific. So if you're going to look for it in the nurseries, whatever, whatever ask for camellia sinensis variety sinensis. So that's the purest one. There's another one grown in India, which is um, Camellia sinensis variety Assam. Um, so, you know, again, really, really popular, but it's Camellia sinensis only. Mm. Okay. Yeah, don't and, play around with the others. And can, yeah, can I go back? Like, so let's, you, you want to make tea, you've got, you've plucked some leaves, yeah. then, then <laughs> what? You want, you just... If you want green tea, you steam those leaves. Uh-huh. Steam them until they're really super soft and then just let them dry out in the kitchen and then you've got green tea to use. If you want black tea, you need to let the – when you pick those leaves, you let them wither for about a day so that's in a, just a light, airy spot and then you crush them and then you just let them sit and dry in your shed for a month or so and then you've uh. got black tea. And do you ever use tea bags or is that slumming it? Uh, no, 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 absolutely. I'm not, you know, um, I'm a busy man. <laughs> um, and even over the years uh, in, you know, because when you're making large amounts, it was just easy to make tea bags and 75 different pots. But, you know, in training my kids and training my little nephews and nieces, yeah, how many dunks per person because well, everyone's got a different level, you know? Well, yes, and what's your answer? Um, as long as possible. Super, super hot water. So that's the, the other thing about making tea. The temperature of the water that you use um, also dictates flavour. So for black tea, as hot as possible, about 100 and, at least 100 degrees, um, and let it sit there for at least a minute and a half to two minutes. And don't touch it. You don't need to jingle. You don't need to dangle. You just let it infuse. What about, what about leaving the tea bag in? Uh, no, that's sacrilege. Oh, all right. <laughs> um, reason being that as soon as yeah, because as soon as you put add if you if you add milk, um, it's the fat in the milk that starts clogging it up, and then you just get this fatty tinge into your tea. Whereas if the milk, and this is the other thing, it's not milk in first. If you pour boiling water onto milk, 
the milk one clogs up the tea bag, and two, you get this fatty residue in your tea, which is yuck. Okay, no dunks. Um, so no dunks, no dunks. I reckon everyone, if you've got a little courtyard, grow it in a pot. Fantastic. It's only a small mm. shrub. If you want a little hedge, a hedge, so that if you're just <gasps> picking, picking your tea, then you're going to have you know, your own tea and a beautiful little clipped hedge. Mm. Beautiful. Mm. Camellia sinensis is uh, good to plant in Melbourne now. Good stuff. All right. Thanks so much, Digger. Pleasure. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Um, I don't know if you remember yesterday, but I mentioned that I was um, a little bit hungover um, mm. yesterday morning. Yes. Uh, my, t- my turn. <laughs> oh, is it? Are you hungover? What are you guys <laughs> doing? What's going on? <laughs> We're in a pandemic, Sarah. We're just drinking. Don't judge us. No judging, just concern. <laughs> Just having a couple of ales in the afternoon and wines in the evening and whiskies in the early morning. Why are you um, hungover, Daniel? Oh, there's just heaps to celebrate. Oh, good. <laughs> um, yesterday, um, yeah, because I, I didn't drink at all yesterday, so good on me. Um, but I – because I just – I was so, like, spent most of the day kind of moping around the house going, oh, and, like, trying to convince myself that it was okay to have a day where I was being lazy. It's like, it's like, you don't don't have to do everything that you normally do. You can just, um, you know, sit and watch TV and stuff. And then I was, um, like, in the kitchen, um, you know, playing on my Nintendo, checking out my Animal Crossing Island, keeping up to date on that. And it had been like half an hour and then Kath yells out and she goes, oh, can you just come and give me a hand with this thing? And I come into the office and she has completed a um, building and installing a wardrobe system. Oh, mate. I'm like, like, we drank the same amount. (laughs) Get stuffed. Get stuffed. You know what I mean? Like. You, we both went to bed at the same time. I'm sure I probably got drunk earlier and, you know, because she drove. So she definitely got drunk when we got home. But I was just like, come on, come on. Why, why, why do you, why are you so, she goes, oh, it's, you know, don't, you can't compare yourself to me. And I'm like, oh, well, I will. Who else are you, you going to compare yourself to? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> And then I was just like, oh, this is the worst. And also, can I just – one other thing that made me, um, you know, traumatise me today was I um, – this morning was sitting here, it's like quarter to five or something, and I'm like tapping away. And then I hear a thud on the desk. I hear a thud on the desk. And this desk, it's like – like an arms, like you put your arms out, you're at the end of the desk. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not very deep. It's everything on the desk is within arm's reach. And I hear this thud and I look down and do you know what it, oh. have a guess what it is. It's a huntsman. Yes, a huntsman. Get out. Landed, a huntsman thudded. Yes. Oh, God. Thudded, landed on the mouse pad. Oh, and it's, ah, it's all your worst nightmares. Oh, my God. Yes. Look how well I'm coping with this. Jesus. I didn't go, have to go and wake Kath up. Um, <laughs> I said, I went in and I said, I'm so sorry. It, it's so early, but there is a huntsman on the desk. And, and she was like, oh, that's not, you know. Anyway, she got it out for me. 
because she's the type of person that builds wardrobes when she's hungover <laughs> and just picks up huntsmen's off mouse pads. <laughs> take them outside. Actually, I don't think she picked it up this time. I, I heard the dust buster, so who knows how she, I think, I don't know. But she's never killed them before. I don't want so to think I, about that. Yeah, being dust busted up. Huntsman on the mouse pad, and that just happened. Yeah, like an hour ago. Oh, mate. Oh, my God. I know. If anyone's got a Valium, send it around. <laughs> Jesus, I'm so It's sorry. so funny because when you talk about Huntsman's being on the roof, you're always like, oh, I just don't want it to jump or whatever. And I think, oh, I wish I could tell her, you know, it's not very likely they're going to jump. That's okay. And then you have one fall from the heavens. On to is, where your hand sits on the computer, like directly where you sit. Oh my god! Yeah, and this is a huntsman that I, we saw. I saw it yesterday. There was oh. like one up on on the roof. He's been watching we, you. <laughs> yes, and then but it had been, but it was in such a way that it looked like it was dead. You know how like must be some sort of um, huntsman thing where they could, you know. Just kind of their legs just kind of crawl up a little bit, and they're just like, oh, I'm dead. So we, I kind of didn't worry too much about the one that, but that's the one that, buddy, because it's not up there anymore. It's buddy jumped down on my mouse pad and gave you the fright of my life. No wonder you're retreating into Animal Crossing where the creatures can't hurt you. Oh, but they have tarantulas on Animal Crossing. They're not real deaf. Do, do they come to get you, or do you? Have yes, to, they oh. come and they bite you. But you can catch them if you time it right. You can catch them in your net. Um, but the first time I came across it, it, was like, oh, I can't, I can't move. And then it kind of jumps at you, and then you get oh. bitten. But you don't die or anything. So anyway, oh my god, did you see that text message we got? No. <laughs> so someone said. We found a huntsman this morning in our wine glass. Oh, oh no, come on. Oh. We're in a pandemic, huntsman. It's not okay. I think they know. <laughs> oh, I could never drink wine again. <laughs> What's his hair? Oh, oh I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, Jez. What did you do last night, Daniel, that's made you like this today? That's today's oh, no. going to be yours. There was just a, there was, it was just a big day with um, – I had to – I babysat – uh, well, no, you don't babysit your own child, but you do in this instance because Jesse was on a work site doing lawyer stuff mm. and um, I kept Gabe company for a very long time. But the what happens is uh, he sleeps and then this is familiar to everybody. They sleep so long and they're so still, you're just not sure if they're... Oh. <laughs> So I, I, do I need to attach like a heart monitor just so I can just look at the screen? Put your finger under the nose. Yeah, but I can't. I feel like I've, my my skin, my my finger skin is too calloused or something to it's register bit, any tiny it's a baby bit gross. breath. Do you think a baby, like imagine having a, someone's gross, dirty finger come up under your nose every hour. <laughs> oh, poor Gabe. Oh, no. and You're saying about Daniel's fingers. Oh, pretty dirty. <laughs> And then he, he would wake up and see a million people and they're all sort of strangers. I feel bad for him. Also, I was thinking about, because obviously, you know, in terms of traumas and, you know, it's minor things when you think that you're doing something wrong or, you know, he'll spew all over your neck and back. Um, but I was thinking about Michael Jackson. I can't believe he dangled a baby. Oh, oh. my God. I was, so have you watched, okay, the Neverland doco, God, it's the worst thing you'll ever see in your life. But in it, they replay that footage. And I haven't thought about that footage in a long time. And it's not like a little dangle. It's a, 
he's holding a baby over a massive balcony. Yeah, and it's not like the people on the other side down below would get a catch better it. look. The, the, yeah, or the, they wouldn't catch it. Or it, if he adds another foot, it's not as good a view, except it becomes exponentially more dangerous for the baby. No, well, it had a blanket over its head, so it didn't help anything. Oh, and then because I was in Berlin and doing a walking tour and, you know, there's all this oh. history. And, and then they're like, like and there's the building. That I did the same tour. <laughs> They're like, this is where World War Two ended. This is where Hitler is buried. This is where, and then like, and that's where Michael Jackson dangled a baby over the balcony. Tourists, I'm here to learn about art and history. Anyway, Triple R. Sarah Smith. Um, yes. Is there anything um, that you have in common with Jess Cornelius at the moment? <laughs> Uh, that I'm a beautiful singer-songwriter yeah, and I'm releasing that's one. a single. Well, you both got brown hair. I think you both probably – you could probably wear each other's clothes. Oh, oh yeah, maybe. Um, I feel really nervous. Um, yeah, and we're both pregnant. Hey. Yay. Sarah Smith is having a baby. I am. I know. So many milestones uh, on this show we've celebrated together and here's another one. Here's amazing. another one. Yeah. Yeah. Daniel's had a baby. We've had Chubbish. I got engaged. Yeah, you getting on board? Now I'm up the yeah, dark. What a time too! I know, I know. Four, I'm four months actually, and um, it's uh, it was slight. It was pre-pandemic, but very quickly pandemic, pandemic. baby. So it's been, <laughs> <laughs> and it's been um a few months of feeling <clears throat> extremely sick. Uh, which uh, apologies to every single human who's ever given birth for the way that I have never taken morning sickness particularly seriously, as it turns out. Uh, it's, not, man, yeah. it's, it's not I mean, feeling a little bit ill in the morning. It's it's like having gastro for three months. Uh, yuck. <laughs> um, it's funny, you've, you know, in that time you had a few days off here and there for, um, you know, but during that during the pandemic, if you have a day off, it's like, well, she's got it. I know. She's got, she's got the corona. Um, Funnily, my days off were unpregnancy related. They were to do with other things, but people, but I couldn't tell. But also, there was the, mm. the pregnancy as well. So it was a bit, there was a layered, when I did think I had the coronavirus, it was layered with me not being able to tell anyone that I was also pregnant. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, so many secrets swirling in your head. <laughs> now, when you obviously you've already told um, you know friends and family, this is um, you know telling everybody else. Uh, I hope have I have. Had... I, I'm worried that I've forgotten people. But well, anyway, yeah. If you're just finding out and you're one of Sarah's best mates, means you're not best mates anymore. <laughs> um, have you? I've been looking up. Um, obviously, back in the day, it was. Um, you know, you couldn't really say that you were pregnant. So there's a, lots of, you know, different ways of saying that you are. Like, you know, back in, the, I think on I Love Lucy, she couldn't say that she was pregnant. Like it was, you know, censored on, on TV. Really? Yeah. Um, so here, uh, uh, and a lot of these we know anyway, but it's fun to look into different ways of saying you're pregnant. So there's the in the family way. Yeah, I love that. Well, how, how do you say fun. that? I'm in the family way. I'm in like, the family way. Yeah. Oh, I should have oh, said that. Oh, what's, oh, <laughs> Sarah Smith is in the family way. 
sounds uh, sounds like I've joined a cult. Oh uh, yeah, or a band, Sarah Smith and the Family Way. <laughs> uh, bun in the oven is a classic. Love a bun uh, in the up oven. Up the duff, which you just used. How about this one though? This one I haven't heard before. Um, the rabbit died. The what? Do you guys know about this? No. Is that science? Yeah, well, there's a bit of science to it, yes. <laughs> but, oh, you yeah, know, oh, the rabbit died. Um, it's referencing um, uh, that back in the old test, um, pregnancy test, they used to, to see if a woman was pregnant, um, uh, a woman's urine was injected into rabbits oh. and scientists then dissected the rabbits to see if a certain chemical reaction happened that would indicate the w- woman was pregnant. So, like, it would cut the rabbit open and if there was, like, two straight lines. That's how broke. they'd work it out. That's the only yeah. way they could tell if a woman was pregnant. Well, I'm sure it became obvious. <laughs> and- <laughs> mm. <laughs> I, I, um, I actually, like, knew so, so soon I was pregnant. You know how you hear about secret pregnancies where people don't realise they're pregnant for months on end? It was mm. I was one of those people where it was very clear within a week that I was oh. pregnant. Yeah, it was extraordinary. And I was like, I remember thinking I'm either something's going wrong, I've got a disease or I'm pregnant. Um, and I really wanted to do a test early, but I didn't realise that you can't test straight away. Like you have to wait a period of time to for it to get to be able to do a test because you have to wait for some hormone to kick in. Mm. Um, but I wanted to – so I had done – I did – I had a test at home and I did one and it came, it was negative, but I just knew that I was – I was like, nah, this is – I've got to wait a little bit longer and try. And so I waited to the point, the furthest out you could, that you, you know, yeah. that you could get this test. You could get these early tests that you could tell, you know, seven days early and – I decided that I had to go and buy a test, but I was a bit paranoid about people seeing. You know, in the early days, you like you just don't want people to know. So I went to a um, chemist in Brunswick, and yeah. I found and I was there was so many tests. I was really overwhelmed by how many there were to choose from, and I was trying to find the right one. And I was standing yeah. there peering at them really closely, and then picked one up. And I turned around, and then Levi from the Triple R office was standing <gasps> behind me, and mm. I don't know if he's seen me or if he politely pretended not to see me but he kind of just looked looked and walked the other way and I went what are the chances of like the one time in my life I've stood in front of pregnancy tests and picked one up someone I work with is standing behind me and I just flipped out and I put the pregnancy test down and ran out of the chemist and then I went into another chemist and in the corner of that chemist there was this woman that I vaguely knew but I'd walked in so I didn't know what to do and I was like I'll just yeah. I'll walk around the aisles really quickly and get one and just get out of here and, and so I put my sunglasses on and I was walking up and down the aisle but there was no one else in this chemist and there was all these pharmacy workers and they kept going can we help you miss can we help you what are you looking for and so I was kind of shuffling around going oh I'm okay I'm okay I'm just looking but I couldn't find the tests for the life of me I went up and down these aisles I could not find one test and so then I just left because I thought it looks like I'm trying to steal stuff unsuccessfully Mm. and I didn't want to particularly talk to this other person that was in there and then I kind of got all panicked and drove back to Coburg and pulled over at this chemist and the third chemist I entered and pulled over at this chemist and found and I walked in and it was a chemist that was only just being set up for the first time like I'd never seen it before so there was barely anything on the shelves and it was just me and this pharmacist and he goes what are you looking for and I said I just need a pregnancy test (laughs) 
And he goes, oh, we've got this one. And it was $55. Like, I don't know. I've never, oh. I don't know what it was for. Like, it had. Gee, babies are expensive. Oh, mate. <laughs> Straight out of the gate. So I just left. <laughs> I went, no. And I left. Anyway, I eventually got are they one. really that much? It was a, it was a, spe- it had like seven tests in it and some other oh, right. hormone. It's it was a, a special one. one. Yeah. It comes with a rabbit. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why when you said the rabbit, I'm like, I may as well have injected my blood into a rabbit. Wow. I would have loved it if you, like, by the time you got to that third chemist, like, you're just like, I just want a pregnancy test. And the guy behind the counter just went, Sarah? It's been such a long time. <laughs> uh, I have a friend who uh, found out she was pregnant because she did a pregnancy test and it came up negative and so she put it in the trash. Then her boyfriend walked past later in the day and saw the pregnancy test. She didn't wait long enough. Oh, that, you know what? That is a big fear. I've, I've, I actually pulled out a test after I did one out of the bin and rechecked it because I thought for that exact same reason. Yeah, wow. it's very Hollywood movie. You know, like you go, oh, oh no, it's fine, and then the partner looks down and sees a positive, a positive yeah, test. Yeah, that like going, oh, phew, and then cracking open the whiskey. Right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> soft cheese for me. <laughs> uh, well, congratulations. Yeah. Oh, Congratulations, thanks. Andrew. Oh, yeah. yeah, thanks. Yeah, he was. Yeah, it's we. It's very. We are. We're very excited. It's nice to um, not be feeling like I want to vomit. I feel very excited by it now, and um, it's a very weird time. I mean, Daniel, you've just had a newborn in a pandemic. It's a very weird time to be pregnant because you don't. You can't really see anyone. Um, yeah, they don't want you in the hospital. No, you have all these appointments and all via telehealth. And uh, so it's just if anyone has any advice or knows um, what they're doing, feel free to text at any point. I'm, one of the, I'm, I'm not one of those people who doesn't want advice. I want everything. I want people to tell me how to do it. So, um, yeah, thanks, yeah. guys. Triple R. Paleontologists from Monash University have been involved in a pretty crazy international research discovery. To tell us about it, four feature creatures this week, we're joined by Dr Alastair Evans, Associate Professor from Monash University's School of Biological Sciences. Alastair, welcome to Breakfasters. Hi, thanks very much for having me. Oh, our pleasure. Can can you lay this research on us? So it's a story that's been going for quite a long time. Um we are always interested in knowing what sort of mammals lived while the dinosaurs were roaming around, maybe munching all of the other creatures that were that were there. And uh, we've been looking at uh, trying to find out what sort of mammals lived in Madagascar, the, the island that's off the coast of Africa. Now, 20 years ago, the lead of this, uh, this study, Dave Krauss, found a whole skeleton of an animal that was so bizarre, he couldn't work out what it was. And so he literally left it in a drawer for 20 years trying to work out what the heck it was. Finally, he found some more fossils that said, ah, this looks a bit like some other group that we've seen fossils of before called Gondwanatheria. And these are animals that were found just in the southern continents. Unfortunately, never in Australia, but in South America and Africa and even in Antarctica. And once he had this missing piece, he could say, yes, this is what this whole skeleton is. This is what this uh, really bizarre animal is. And so it was so crazy, so bizarre, that he called it uh, Adalatherium, or crazy beast. <laughs> and that's the official name. 
That is the official name. Yes, it's amazing what you can get away with these days. <laughs> what aspects of this creature make it crazy? Uh, well, there are lots of very specific characteristics about it, like the number of little holes in its skull, uh, the way that its uh, backbone bends, uh, the the strength and the claws on its, on its legs. Uh, and one of the things that I work on mostly is looking at their teeth. And their teeth are actually unlike any ever found in any mammal. And in, and in many ways, they're backwards from what, from what any other mammal that we find. And so it looks like that they've basically reinvented how to make a tooth all by themselves when they were stuck on an island for tens of million years. God. Um, can you tell us about mammals back then? You know, how big did they get, for instance? Uh, there weren't any mammals bigger than about 10 kilos, and they were very rare. So we're talking mostly about um, you know, a dilatherium was about the size of a cat or a um, opossum or a possum. Um, but everything then was small, uh, almost all small. Uh, they had um, fairly basic features. They weren't very, um, very dedicated to particular forms of life. And there were lots of different groups of mammals. So we think about three mammals, three groups of mammals these days. We have placentals like us and whales and cows and bats. We have marsupial mammals that include the, um, the kangaroo, the koala uh, and the Tassie devil. Uh, and we have the last group of mammals, the monotremes, that are only found in Australia. So back then, there were five or ten other groups of mammals that were built in completely different ways that, that were sort of like early experiments in how to be a mammal and almost all of those died when the dinosaurs died. So this whole big extinction event got rid of many of those early mammalian experiments. Some of them did go into uh, the, our time period now, the Cenozoic, including Adalatheria. Um, we don't know how long uh, the crazy beast existed because we only have one fossil of it found 66 million years ago. Wow. What, um, what does it look like? Well, it had quite a flat face very robust uh, limbs, legs, that, uh, front legs that sort of uh, poked out a bit. It had a short tail um, and large claws, particularly on its back legs. And so it looks a bit like it would have um, uh, bitten and eaten hard food, maybe like plants. It had these claws that may well have been used for digging. Mm -hmm. And an interesting clue for that is that it had a fairly short tail. So if it was using its big, uh, chunky back legs to dig then you don't want a long tail to get in the way while you're digging out dirt. So but perhaps like, that was how it did it. Um, like if you would you compare it to a, a like a mammal that's living now, is it? do you think maybe a wombat or...? There are some similarities to a wombat. It's probably a little bit less stocky than a wombat because a wombat's one of the most round, stocky yeah. mammals you find. Um, a badger is one of the ones that's often okay. um, considered to be similar. It's like a... Yes, it's a and that's how it's been reconstructed you know they, they make a lovely furred reconstruction of what the animal like to look at might look might have looked like and um they put things like stripes on it um that make it look a fair bit like a badger but it's yeah. in no way related to the modern badgers that we have now yeah yeah is it too early to draw anything from this in evolutionary terms or what do you what do you hope the for the light that might be shed with this discovery well, what we can see so far is that we now have a much better idea of what these Gondwanatherians were like, because previously all we'd found first was teeth for 20, 30 years. Then they found a little jaw and then a skull 
and that skull was the other one found in Madagascar. And now we have this whole animal that tells us how all the different bits of the body are different to us as mammals and as other groups of mammals that are around now. Now, ideally, we would find more of these types of fossils, either in Madagascar or Africa or South America, that would tell us more about the diversity of these animals, like how many different types where they were and how big they were. Um, and we could have more clues about why they went extinct. Now, they went extinct in Madagascar, certainly because um, not long after the... Um, uh, the mass extinction event at, at 66 million years ago, there were massive uh, volcanoes that came out of India. And you think, oh, India's all the way over there and Madagascar's down there. In fact, they were right next to each other. They were joined yeah. um, back then. And so these massive volcanoes that happened in India basically wiped out everything in Madagascar. And all the life that we see there now has been seeded and crossed the, the several hundred kilometres of sea to get from Africa to Madagascar. What would have their biggest predator be, been when they were alive, do you know? Uh, we know that there were crocodiles and other large dinosaurs there. Um, no other mammals would have been there. Um, so, yes, there was plenty for them to, to um, have been eaten upon. <laughs> <laughs> and do you, you're you know, a co-author of this study. Do you celebrate? what? It's an international effort. How does that all work? Oh, well... Normally, we'd, we'd try to celebrate as much as possible people who are local. Um, we had a, a couple of discussions over, over Zoom to, you know, keep everybody excited. Um, <laughs> they did a big press release uh, a couple of weeks ago when, it was, when the paper was released. Um, yes, and, and we celebrated within our group um, here at Monash. Yeah, and you've been to Madagascar? I've never been to Madagascar. Oh, I've never been? No, no. Um, so this is a very long-term project, and basically when they find these fossils, they go, okay, so we need other people around the world who have expertise in different parts of the animal or different uh, animal groups. And so I was brought in as being someone who knows about uh, the potential evolution of their teeth. Yeah, and just quickly, the um, your field has one of the best abbreviations in science. Uh, evolutionary developmental biology, what's, what's shorthand for that? Evo Devo. Evo Devo. <laughs> so good. <laughs> it's good. Got to get that on a T-shirt. Oh, yes. Oh, um, well, it'd be, it'd be fun to see an artist's uh, interpretation of the crazy beast. Is that... Yes, I can send that to you. Yep. Oh, um, we've, oh, we've, got, cool. we've got 3D models of um, how it would have looked with its all furred and big whiskers. We think it would have had big whiskers oh. because um, it has uh, lots of nerves and, and blood vessels in the face. Yeah. Oh. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, it's The Crazy Beast, and we, we'll put that out on our socials. Um, we've been chatting to Alistair Evans, Associate Professor from Monash University School of Biological Sciences. Cheers, Alistair. Thanks very much. Thank you. Triple R. Laura Dunneman is back working from home as our Friday funny bugger. Hi, Laura. Hello, guys. How are you going? Good, thank you. Well. Massive congratulations to you, Sarah. Oh, thanks, Anno. Um, one piece of advice that I'll pass on to you. Yes. Um, with, like, doctor's appointments and hospital and everything that you go through with pregnancy. And they don't exist at the moment, so it's okay. Well, yeah, that's. <laughs> true you're gonna have the baby at home aren't you in the bath I think I have to (laughs) 
any anything that you come across that you find remotely difficult, but my recommendation would be just to lie and say you're going to faint. Um, <laughs> I did that a few times during my pregnancy, and it opens a lot of doors. Like it's <laughs> during Corona times. <laughs> Learn learn how to cry on cue as well because crying will really, like, change things up for you as well. All right. Thank you. This is great advice. Yeah, no problem. (laughs) I I told a few midwives I was going to faint and it really helped. Do you have any crying on cue tips? Yeah. uh, You know, is it the shortness of breath? (laughs) Yeah. Often I find you don't even actually need to get to the crying part. If someone can just sense that you're about to cry, so probably, yeah, fast breathing um, (laughs) would help, like head in hand. Yeah. Shake the shoulders up and down. (laughs) (laughs) What about the fanning of the face? Yeah, Yeah, fanning of the face. I'm feeling hot. I'm feeling really hot. That kind of thing. Like anything to to get out of that situation. Just make make them feel really uncomfortable. Mm. (laughs) Quivering lips would be a real Daniel Day-Lewis territory. It'd be... (laughs) I can't do it. I I can't fake quiver lip. If you could, you can fake cry all day. Well, how how far along are you? Four months? Four months, yeah. Yeah, you can start practising now. I've been crying a lot anyway, so I find that it just happens. Um, I've just got to try and make sure the cries come at the right time. Yeah, exactly. Get it in time before you have your gestational diabetes test because that, one, that one's one you'll want to really be fake fainting for. Oh, gosh. I don't – okay, I'm going to – I'll file this away. Thank you. I know that one day I'm going to be using that and be thinking of you, so I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, so, guys, it's nice to see faces. Mm. I'd rather be in the studio um, because I have a very important role at Triple R, don't I? Yes, you are the royal correspondent. I am. I'm the Triple yeah. R royal correspondent. <laughs> and um, I feel like as important a role as that is, you know, I feel like, during COVID, we've sort of forgotten about the royals, haven't we? A little bit, yes. Yeah, we've forgotten about <laughs> poor old royals. We've forgotten to talk about them. Um, but it doesn't mean that their lives stop. Um, it kind of does, but <laughs> um, I feel like I feel like being a royal during this time is just would just be the absolute best, wouldn't it? Because the whole thing about being part of the royal family is that you get, you know, to live in a castle and you get as much money as you possibly need, but you have to go and do these engagements and shake people's hands and be polite. And now that they can't go outside, they're like, well, I guess I can't do those things. So I'll just rich and do nothing then. (laughs) Sounds like the royals have lost their job, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly, mm. exactly. They don't need JobKeeper, do they? No. Um, so I thought I would just give a little quick quarantine royal update for uh, R listeners. I figured that a lot of people out there are wondering what um, certain members of the royal family have been up to. Yeah. We haven't seen much of them. Um, first of all, obviously the biggest royal of them all, the Queen, we haven't seen her at all, have we? Because she's pretty much um, dead. Uh- 
Or she would be if she went outside. So um, they've locked her up. They've locked her up in the castle. She's gone to Windsor Castle, um, which has 1,000 rooms in Windsor Castle. So I figured that it's a really good place to quarantine because if she farts, she can just walk into another room, can't she? (laughs) which has been a problem for a lot of people during quarantine if they're living in a one-bedroom apartment or studio <laughs> flat. <laughs> so she doesn't have that problem. Um, obviously, um, Prince Philip is quarantining with her in um, Windsor Castle and I just feel like this is a really good opportunity for him to finally park it and not to have to tell anyone for a while. So... It, there's been a long-running gag that he's a ghost, um, <laughs> Philip, and I feel like he could finally just make his move. Quarantine, um, <laughs> go ahead. Um, but she, um, she's been walk, she's been walking around in Windsor Castle. I've heard from um, from uh, royal aides, um, and she's changed up her wardrobe um, in quarantine. She's now wearing what all of us are wearing, which is black tights and a sweater, <laughs> uh, black tights and a windshitter all day. Um, but she did, um, she told one of her closest confidants that she developed a bit of a crush on Captain Tom. Ooh, who's oh, Captain Tom? With the moustache. He was the one that walked. He was that 100-year-old man that walked up oh. and, down and raised all that money. Oh, oh, it's oh. it's Sir Tom now, isn't it? Yes, Sir Captain Tom. So she's got the hot for him, and she only made him a sir so that she could eventually knight him, and they can, you know, up. <laughs> the dating scene is decimated. Prince Philip's dead. She's got to meet someone. Anyway, I've been, she's- I've been thinking about Captain Tom and how if he does get knighted, do they still do the sword thing? Well, with Corona. Well, even like post-Corona, it's like traditionally you kneel and get the sword treatment. I'm like, he's too old to kneel. Yeah, but he's not that tall. He's hunched over enough already, isn't he? (laughs) He's got his wheelie walker. Yeah. He can just sort of bend down onto his wheelie walker a little bit. Yeah, right. I hope the sword's blunt as well. Anyway. (laughs) We've got very thin skin. Um, literally, not figuratively. Uh, <laughs> respect your elders. Um, Kate and William. Kate, Princess Kate and oh, William. Yeah. Everyone's mm-hmm. wondering what they're doing. So they've gone and um, uh, moved up to Anma Hall, which is their country residence in Norfolk. Um, and it's a mansion that was renovated in 2015 for £1.5 million and they lived in for a year. So I think the British taxpayer are probably happy that they're getting a little bit more use out of that country mansion now that the virus is hit. Um, but they've, st- they've actually still been quite active and working. They've been doing Zoom calls for engagements instead of, you know, obviously attending in person. So we've still seen a little bit of Catherine and William on screen on Zoom. And um, keen royal followers would have noticed that she's been wearing um, different coloured cardigans each time she's on screen. And it's thought that um, each cardigan is sending a covert message to the British public that she's sending different messages through her choice of cardigan 
and I've oh. um, I've cracked the code. So I've real I've figured out that um, uh, when she wears a red cardigan, that means um, I had sex last night. <laughs> um, I know. Uh, when she wears a yellow cardigan, um, that that means that she's saying I'm I'm going to have sex tonight. <laughs> and when she wears a green cardigan, that means I'm lactose intolerant. <laughs> God. Yeah. Cracking so, the Cardi code. That's yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. Cracking the Cardi code. <laughs> Cracking the Cardi code. Um, <sighs> Prince George has been making sourdough. Someone's got to do it. Um, <laughs> Princess Charlotte also, you might have seen in the news, she was photographed delivering um, food packages to elder, to the elderly. Um and that's, you know, a really charitable charitable act for a five-year-old. And um, what wasn't captured and sent out to the media was the moment when she asked an elderly woman if she could please rescue her. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they kept that one out of the media. And, of course, um, Prince Charles, he was in the news because he got it, didn't he? Mm. You know who didn't catch the world's most infectious virus off him Camilla his wife <laughs> we talk a lot about their marriage yeah the trouble at home <laughs> quite a bit of trouble there but they've been um holed up in Balmoral in the Scottish Highlands the Queen's residence up there so you know they're just killing deer and playing bagpipes <laughs> So very, very sexy times up there. Um, but I just want to w- mention before I finish, I want to mention the worst off royal because they've all been doing it pretty easy. There's one that's really had a, a tough time that I want to send a particular call out to. Can you guys guess who it might be? Uh, would it be Prince Harry? Nah, he's dead to me. He's not <laughs> oh. don't, um. even mention, don't even mention those names to me. <laughs> Is it Andrew? He's a dirty dog, Daniel. (laughs) He deserves everything he gets. Isn't that good? Because he's out of the spotlight now. (laughs) Prince Andrew's daughter, Beatrice, um, she's had to call off her wedding twice. The first time she had to call off her wedding because her dad's a dirty dog. (laughs) (laughs) And then she rescheduled the wedding. She's marrying a guy called Eduardo Mapelli Mozzi, um, who's like an Italian billionaire, I think. Um, and she's had to cancel her wedding twice, so the first time because of her dirty dad and then the second because of COVID. So they don't know when she's going to get married now. Oh. Yeah, so call, just to want to do a shout-out to Beatrice <laughs> of you, and um, if she wants to do a wedding live on air, I'm sure she'll break faster. <laughs> Absolutely. There's no gimmick beneath us. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I can't, unbelievable. Royal Watcher, Laura Dunneman, cracking the Cardi code. Uh, thanks so much and look forward to talking again soon, hopefully. Oh, my pleasure, guys. Nice to see faces. Thanks, Laura. Stay well. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app.
Warwick Thornton is an award-winning director, screenwriter and cinematographer whose vast work includes Samson and Delilah, Sweet Country and recently season two of Mystery Road. His latest project is the cinematic six-part documentary The Beach, making its world premiere tonight on NITV and SBS. And to tell us about it, the celebrated filmmaker joins us on the line now. Warwick, welcome to Breakfasters. Yeah, no, I just thank you for having me. Oh, our pleasure. Um, now... The Beach chronicles your time about a year ago, self-exiled in a tin shack on a remote Western Australian beach. Can you tell us what it was about your life that prompted you to isolate before it became fashionable? Uh, too much drinking, too much partying. <laughs> it's pretty simple, isn't it? You know what I mean? You, you, if, you, if, you, if you talk to yourself enough, your body kind of and your brain says, hey, you need to break these cycles, dude. You know what I mean? You need to you know, snap out of it. And that was for, that's, but that's how I do it. I sort of go and do a little bit of self-isolating. You sort of check yourself and you think about what you're doing. You give up the piss for a while. You eat well. You know what I mean? Do some punting, mm. get some exercise in, all of that. That's pretty well how it all started. You um, you, you bring some chickens along and use their eggs, and in one of your soliloquies to your chickens, you say, we do it again and we know it's wrong and we do it again. Uh, yeah. is, um, does that, you know, does that history, hold true? Yeah, absolutely. We're all village idiots in a way. We know what's what we don't. We we know the things that are bad for us, but we damn like. You know what I mean? And mm. sort of you've got you 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 know you just got to control that sort of stuff. You got to check. You know you got to look at yourself and go. Here we go again. I've been here before. You know <laughs> we all do it. We, you know, and you know I'm the kind of person too that I like beer, and um, I'm not going to give it up. I just got to work out how to drink two of them or three of them, not twelve. So, you know, that's kind of, you know, it's pretty simple. It's not rocket science, but it is incredibly difficult. Mm. Uh, you, you come from just a, you know, so many of your family are involved in the filmmaking business and your son was DOP. Uh, mm-hmm. what's, it, what's it like to work closely with your family? You know, I, I don't really work that closely with my sister or my mother, you know, who, who are famous um One's a famous filmmaker, and the other one, you know, started TV stations and radio stations and all that sort of stuff. My mum did, but you know, when you when you when you when you sort of do a bit of rehabby kind of cold turkey and that, it's sort of like you do need a comfort blanket. And, and my son was my comfort blanket. He's an incredibly beautiful cinematographer, and you know, and he's an incredibly beautiful human being. Um, so, you know, a lot of times I wish I was more like him and less like me. And but he was, you know, he was there to obviously shoot it and 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 make amazing images, but he was there to pat me on the head and say, "You'll be right, Dad," as well. You know what I mean? It was sort of mm. a comfort blanket, just as much as an amazing cinematographer. Because you know, it's good to have family around when you're going through some, you know, some some business. Mm. And, you know, the chickens too. The, the chickens, the chickens for me were, you know, they were a bit of a comfort blanket too. Someone to talk to. They're the, they're the perfect shrink. Chickens, they, they listen. They listen to everything that you, you have to say. You know what I mean? And they agree. They go, buck, buck. With the, and say, yeah, I understand totally. You know what I mean? They're kind of like, a, they're like the perfect shrink. You don't have to pay for them. And if you get really hungry, you can chop their head off and eat them. <laughs> you could, um, I mean, when you talk to the chickens, because there's so much kind of um, silence in this film, it, it really... It, that kind of really stands out. But I was just wondering if you could talk about the role of silence in, in, in this um, and, and how important it was to have that kind of quietness as well in this. Yeah, well, you know, there's a point where you start listening again. You know, you stop talking and you start listening, which is really important. I think that's a good transition when you're going through some 
harder stuff is you know you need to you need to you need to spit it all out you need to have a voice and you need to say what you need to say but then the, then you need to listen and you kind of you know for me it's listening to the the country and listening to the landscape but it's listening to yourself as well that sort of inner thought you know that's really important for me so so silence you know that space between the words you know it's just as important as the word we've got to a point now where we have to and I'm doing it right now you want know I mean the instant sort of perfect paragraph about you know how important something is you know what I mean where it's sort of you know you got to stop and think and, and listen and that's that's really you know that stuff is just as important uh speaking of things that are important I guess the show is it's almost part cooking show uh, we know that the chickens played a really great role in helping you heal. Tell us about the role of um, cooking. Hello. 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 Ah, we're still there. Sorry, I didn't. I, I, I lost that last word. Tell us the role about. Oh, uh, just cooking and preparing meals, and what that ah, did for your mental health. Yeah, totally. You know what I mean? Like food, food for me is 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 not a performance. You know what I mean? I I, I find that a lot of what we watch on television and what we have to, what people photograph and put on social. I don't have actual social media, so I'm a little bit of shit here about social media. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Um, you know, like sort of, it's, it's it's all about performance, and it's not. You know what I mean? For me, it's 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 something really incredibly nurturing, and it's it's survival. And I find food to be, you know, it's, well, we, we need it or we'll die. That's a good one. It's like air. Mm. You know what I mean? But it's, it's, been, it's been turned into the, this sort of I win, you lose, because I know how to cook better than you on, on television or, on, you know, Instagramming stuffy, whatever that is. You know, and it's kind of, so that sort of slowing down and changing the subject, I, I have a pretty pressured life when it comes to you know, being on set, making movies and all that sort of rubbish, you know, and, and mm. so... I find it really important. I make sure that every every production I work for, I, they give me a house, or they give me a not not a house to keep, but you know, <laughs> or an, an apartment wherever, whichever country or or city or town I'm, I'm shooting in. I, so I have a kitchen because I need every night to cook to 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 separate all the hullabaloo and all the crap about making a movie and separating that before I go to sleep to something else. So that's where food becomes really important to me to slow down and stop thinking about you know movies and start thinking about life and it, for me that you know just chopping steak and, and onion and creating you know what I mean creating a recipe which is kind of like storytelling because you have different you know you have different kind of um, ingredients and that's how cinema is you know it has different kind of ingredients and when you put them all together it tastes good or it looks mm. good or it sounds good you know what I mean so it's a kind of has the sort of same connotations, but it just changes the subject for me so I can sleep better. The cooking mm. makes me sort of mentally in a better place to go to bed. Another reason you might not like cooking shows is because they're doing it against the clock and you're not particularly, you don't appear to be particularly hurried cook. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm not, yeah, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm not the fastest chopper in the world and I'm, <laughs> hopefully I never will be. <laughs> yeah. um, you've, got a, you've got a director's eye, obviously, and you're also the subject of this project. When yeah. something happens to you, how do you, how do you, uh, how do you reconcile that tension knowing that, say, you get bogged and it's like, oh God, this is good content, but I'm actually in this moment. <laughs> It's, it's interesting. I have the saying, be careful what you write because you just might have to make it. 
And, you know, <laughs> and, on, day, and on day one, it's, um, you know, there's my son and Nicole, the amazing sound recorders, standing to, to my periphery, rolling, and it's like, oh, shit, here we go. You know, you idiot bloke. Now you're standing in front of the camera, and, you know, what did you do that for, you moron? And you know, it took about a week to to forget about them. You know, we were up there for eight weeks and, you know, it was six weeks of shooting and two weeks of pre. And it took about a week to, to, to get into living in a way because, and it's, and it's all about bloody vanity. You know what I mean? About how you look and sucking your guts in. You know what I mean? That kind mm. of, you know, it was all about vanity. And then, then it raised, then the vanity stuff raised its ugly head when we were in the edit, you know, and I was with Andrea, the incredible editor. And it's like, oh, don't you look, don't use that shot. I look like shit. I look like a, you know, the ogre under the bridge just sort of rolled out without brushing his hair. And it's kind of like, and then it was sort of this real epiphany about, well, no, that's the right sh- sh- shot to use. You know what I mean? Because I was ugly and I was feeling like crap. And you know what I mean? And that's, that, that's, that's the important thing. So that, you know, that's the vanity of kind of like trying to make yourself look as, as, as fantastic as possible, but then realizing actually, using the stuff that was real and truthful and honest, which is the ones where I was looking like crap mm-hmm. and being grumpy and, you know, sweaty and B.O.E. and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> that's, 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 what the, that's what this film's about. That's, it's, that's what it's about. It's not about, hey, look at me. I'm, I'm the great black hunter, you know what I mean, standing on the hill all-knowing. It's so like, no, you're the, you're, the, <laughs> you're the village idiot who actually doesn't know very much, and that's actually what this film's about, and, that's, mm-hmm. you know, and who needs to... Who needs to educate and, and look after themselves and get healthier because then you'll be a, you know you become a, a better human being. You know? mm. That's sort of get rid of the performance issues and get rid of the vanity and that's kind of that was the difficult side of it. But actually, that's why I really love this documentary is because I think it's really truthful to that. Do you think you did become a better human being after making this? Has anything changed for you? Hell yeah! I think you know I think I, I am. I, hey, here we go. <laughs> I, think I, I think I, I think I am a damn good human being, except I've just forgotten. <laughs> you know what I mean? And by doing this, I got back to being a damn good human being. You know what I mean? It sort of, you know what I mean? It's, it it kind of it. I, I got clearer and smarter, and well, I'm not really smarter, but just you know, just clearer, and that kind of made me turn back into and you know your, your thoughts are much more clearer and they're, and they're more they're more connected rather than the self-centered existence you know what I mean mm-hmm. it, it, they became more about the you know the surroundings and the people around you and the landscape around you and you know the chickens next to you and about what how are they feeling and that's what I think of a better human being is someone who actually connects to the surroundings and, and can see more of their periphery and actually worry more about that rather than your, your personal existence and your sort of, you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. when you're running a mark and you're drinking too much and you're partying, you know, and you're going to the party and the after party, you start thinking more about yourself and you start becoming so self-centered and important and your ego takes control and your vanity, you know what I mean, washes over you, you know what I mean? It's sort of like, that's the problem. And by, by doing this, I started to open up and started to look at your, the surroundings, which was much more important. And I think that's being a good human being. Mm. 
Well, cinematic documentary The Beach makes its world premiere tonight at 7.30pm simulcast across NITV, SBS and On Demand. Also, Triple R's Monday night film show Primal Screen is doing a Warwick Thornton film special this Monday at 7pm. And uh, yes, <laughs> and you, you used to be a DJ, so I'd, I'm happy to receive any advice or if you miss it, but... Uh, Maybe we'll talk about that another time. Uh, but we've been speaking with filmmaker Warwick Thornton. Thanks, he's Warwick. No, it's just thank you, say. Awesome. Thank Rock you. On, triple R. Triple R. After a 12-year hiatus, Lena Woodley reunited in 2018 to sold-out theatres with their show Fly, which won the Melbourne Comedy Festival People's Choice Award and was recorded and released this year globally on Amazon Prime. Now the legendary comedy duo is back in lockdown with Lena Woodley singing some songs via Zoom. And ahead of the shows this weekend, the TV host, actor, and Lena Half joins us on the line now. Colin Lane, welcome to Breakfasters. Oh, well, a very good morning to you, you lovely, uh, lovely people this Friday morning. Um, I'm not sure that um, I've ever been described as a TV host. So, um, <laughs> oh, Renny Steady Cook? I guess, yeah, well, I guess I was. Um, but that was just a very weird little two-year um, uh, sojourn into the crazy old world of commercial TV. And I like telling Frank that when he did his uh, TV series called Woodley for the ABC... Uh, he did seven episodes, and I did two years of Ready, Steady, Cook, and I did 260. So, uh, <laughs> oh, wow. And I did not learn a single thing about cooking. But anyway, <laughs> moving forward. Uh, I guess before you dust off the performing cobwebs this weekend, how would you reflect on your two months of isolation? <clears throat> uh, well, I've been doing, I mean... You know, to put it in perspective, it's not that important, but I've been doing that wonderful thing called Moving House. Oh, uh, my God. Which, um, which uh, puts a whole different sp- different spin on uh, the whole kind of lockdown. But I've got <clears throat> kids at school, um, well, kids at home um, doing some schooling, and I haven't really been that impressive in that department. And... <laughs> I haven't um, uh, just been panicking quietly um, in your own little moments about <clears throat> whether you will ever do another show in front of people again. I think <laughs> that's been the, the the main thing of just, you know, it's all, it's, oh, I don't know, I, I'm no psychologist, but it's just that perspective thing. Sometimes you just go, no, I'm fine. I've got a family. I've got a house. And then other times. Oh, no. No. So it's that constant state of flux, but, um, you know, hopefully we're, hopefully we're um, improving on things and it's all, it's, it's, sometimes you're 55 and other times you're just five, year, five years old and you just go, <laughs> oh, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Uh, and, and what about this, this singing some songs? How, how's the rehearsal going? What, is it an excuse to get out of the house? Uh, yeah, it's pretty good. I've I've been to uh, Frank's uh, maybe a couple of times, and uh, we just thought we'd dust off a few old tunes and um, just um, explore other options of uh, performing. And 
our lovely management people said, well, why don't you just do a best of kind of Lana Woodley um, music show? So we've got a lovely pianist in with us, uh, Andrea Keller, who's uh, accompanying us, and we're showing a, a few really old kind of unseen little Lana Woodley films, and we're doing a couple of readings from House Meeting and... Look, we're doing some songs that are some are old, some are new, some are so old that you think they'll they'll they're new. So um, it's 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 been it's been fun. It's it's but it's it's been um, really satisfying to get out and do something, you know, mm. that, that's work related. So it's 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 been fun, and we're really looking forward to it. Who came up with the title? <laughs> <clears throat> well, we had a um, we had an album called Lanham Woodley Sing Songs um, a few years ago before we broke up, um, and then we just thought that we would um, call this show Singing Some Songs. And then, if you notice, it's it's singing without the G because it mm. just kind of lowers people lowers people's expectations <laughs> a little bit. If if you if you, if you don't use correct grammar, then Suddenly, people think, "Well, they can't even get the grammar right." So, I'm not sure whether the show is going to be 100. percent So, that's what we've been doing for most of our career: is lowering people's expectations. So, when something does go right, it's a pleasant surprise. And <laughs> we, we, a lot of people say under promise and over deliver, but we, we just under promise and then end up under delivering. <laughs> um, so. The old comedy um, adage or showbiz adage is, um, you know, losing and wanting more. <laughs> well, sometimes we try so hard, we just, people are leaving going, well, I just wanted a little bit less, quite frankly. Uh, and what about as a songwriter? Do you enjoy that process? Is there, is there, you're on a music station. Is there someone that you, you know, maybe not, wouldn't broadcast during a comedy show, but seek a bit of inspiration from in, in or admire as a songwriter? <laughs> Um, uh, Pam Ayres, um, I think she's, <laughs> why did I think of that? I'm <laughs> out loud, I could have chosen any, <laughs> I was just, I was racking my brain just going, yeah, I wish they'd tell me what questions they were going to ask me, I wish they'd tell me what questions they were going to ask me, and then I'm, what the bloody hell am I doing? Pam knows. How many people in Melbourne know who the hell Pam is? Bloody dick, wit, dick, nose. Um, look, um, <laughs> um, weirdest interview I've ever done. Um, Pam has or um, some. Well, we like to um, Simon Garfunkel, maybe. Um, oh, yeah. You know, they they were one of our favourite musical duos and comedy duos. You know, the tall guy, short guy thing was pretty funny, and. Um, that hair was pretty good, but no, <laughs> this answer to this question may go down as probably the worst answer to a question. <laughs> no, no, it's good. I haven't heard the reference to the uh, host of Opportunity Knocks for uh, decades, so. Bloody <laughs> 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 hell. Okay. Uh, um, after, Moving on. After you guys broke up and then got back together again, what was the most awkward thing about getting back together and performing? Or something that you didn't expect? Awkward. I think, I mean, when we did get back together a couple of years ago, the joke around most interviews was, you know, we broke up for 12 years and I, because it was such a long period, I forgot 
why we broke up, and then when we got back together, I remembered why. <laughs> um, but so, so sometimes, you know, sometimes in situations like, you know, yesterday when we were going through the show, I, I remembered again um, uh, why, why we broke up. Um, but I think essentially what we keep on saying to ourselves is, without being all too kind of, you know, lovey-dovey and syrupy, the, the most fun we've had on stage in our careers has been with each other. So all those things that we did over those 12 years, like theatre or comedy festivals by himself, Frank doing shows by himself, they're all fun and satisfying. But that magic, if I can be so kind of um, grandiose, of being on stage with that other guy, when you're completely at ease and confident in the product or the, not product, but the, the show that you're doing, it's, it's just, you know, it's a joy to actually be on stage and just look, you know, because I know that when Frank's talking, I'm not standing there shitting myself. I'm standing there going, oh, this is grass. <laughs> this, is, this is great. So that's, that's something that um, uh, even to this day, you know, is, is, is so great that we can still make each other laugh and, um, and uh, you know, go on stage and, and know that we're going to have fun the next hour and a half. It's going to be, it's going to be fun. And that's, that's, a, you know, it's a, a I was, I was going to say privilege. It's, it's great. It's good. <laughs> mm. Well, there was a promo release this morning of a short song and you make each other laugh, which is kind of desperately needed right now, it seems. Uh, well, yes, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, we're talking Lano Woodley singing some songs. <laughs> it's, it's via Zoom. It's tonight. Goodness gracious. And tomorrow night uh, yes. at 7.30 p.m. Uh, bookings at yes, comedy.com.au. Yeah. Good luck with the shows. Is, is, is there going to be audience interaction? How does it work? Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I think we've got a routine where we're um, trying to talk to people at home, and yeah, I'm not sure. It it, it could just be. See, I, I've got some lovely friends that said that they couldn't figure out whether they wanted to watch Friday night or Saturday night, and I said, well, if you watch Saturday night, it's going to be a slightly more rehearsed version of the Friday night show, and they said, mm, we might watch the Friday night show because <laughs> that's going to be. That's going to be a. That's probably going to be. You're going to see the desperation behind our eyes. So, if you want to see a debacle, watch tonight. If you want to see a slightly less um, debacle show, watch tomorrow night. It's up to you. Oh, watch, watch both. Nice. What else are you going to do? That's right. Bookings. Comedy. Com. We've been speaking with Colin Lane. Thanks heaps, Colin. Good on you. Great stuff. And then this is my personal guarantee. If you go online and uh, buy tickets, and then you say to the person, um, if I mention this Triple R interview, Colin Lane said I could get half price tickets, it's my personal guarantee that they will say, piss off, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so that, that's our personal guarantee. All right, always reliable. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.